0: As we were decorating this week, you know, they were putting these cacti on the, the podiums. It was one of the things that was really interesting, you know, when we moved from seminary to the church in Arizona, going from living in the middle of a cornfield to having, we probably had a saguaro cactus in our backyard. The backyard was up against the little open area, and there was a saguaro back there that had to have been 25 feet tall or taller. I mean, it was enormous. They are really neat neat things. I remember watching a show one time on, we like to watch shows about houses being built, and it was about this really neat house that had been built right outside of Tucson. And they were talking about the challenge that they had in laying the foundation because they had to move plants. They didn't want to just kill stuff. And the guy was saying, we were moving some of the most sensitive plants on the planet. are you kidding me those plants put up with 115 degree heat in the summer they almost never get water they live at three and a half thousand feet it gets down to 30 degrees or colder in the winter like these plants are pretty hardy (laughs) but if you if you read about the saguaros or or watch anything on them it's interesting we don't know how old they get because unlike a tree you can't cut it in half and count the number of rings and there are saguaros that are still alive and thriving that were first discovered by people 150 years ago, 200 years so we don't know how long they live. And it's just interesting to me, you have things like saguaros that just they live hundreds of years and certain trees that live even thousands. And you think of if they could talk, if they could see everything that they have seen over that many years. In fact, I read an article a few weeks ago. It was talking about these trees in California that are 1,500 years old, and by looking at the rings, they can tell when there was moist times and dry times, and they think about 1,000 years ago, there was a drought in the Southwest that made what looks this 20-year drought we're having now look like nothing, that these trees went out without water for a long, long time. And they, these trees tell this story, but it's a story of... I mean, as people, we live a good life of 70, 80 years. Some longer. Some shorter. It's a very narrow time. And sometimes in that narrow time, again, as we talked about last week, it's so easy to get focused on just right now. But we worship a God who... Exists in eternity, in eternity past, in eternity future, and it's a concept that we can't even really grasp because of our being in time and experiencing things as they come and in these moments and how overwhelming they could be. Again, as I ended last week, I've had several people comment to me and, and ask. Uh, About how I ended it and talking about how I'm not always good at at acknowledging God being with me in these holes sometimes in life. And and really what I was, was trying to do was be an encouragement to you that it's okay if this isn't something you're always great at either. But let's try together to be encouraged by the life of Joseph and the way that he dealt with these challenges that life brought his way. Because I'm encouraged. And I hope we all can be, and it can it can teach us something about working through these things and seeing God in them. A week ago Saturday, we were up at camp. John Bangs gave his testimony. And he was reading from James 1 about how we're supposed to take, we're supposed to rejoice in trials. And it was interesting because I was preparing for my sermon for Sunday and I was already somewhat overwhelmed by how was I gonna deal with this topic that I've been studying all week and I don't feel like I'm doing a good job at and, and he started talking about that in his own testimony and, it, and it's convicting. And how do we rejoice in trials? After giving that sermon last week, I went home and we were in our daughter's room and they had Christian music playing and they had a song playing that I've always really liked. I don't think I'd heard it in a while. I don't often listen to Christian radio, oftentimes just music on the whatever service my wife put on my phone that I can listen to stuff on. But the song came on, it's I Raise a Hallelujah. And the song says that, you know, I, I can't sing, so I won't sing for you, but it says that I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies, I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief. I raise a hallelujah, my weapon is a melody. I raise a hallelujah, heaven comes to fight for me. I'm going to sing in the middle of a storm. I was listening to these lyrics and I thought, I mean, this is what really acknowledging God in that hole looks like that for God to get glory for me going through this walking through this acknowledging him with me is for the world around me to see me praising him no matter the circumstances with our limited scope it's often so hard to see the big picture but we can know who God is and that he is with us and as we look at continue to look at the story of Joseph this morning we're jumping ahead one chapter chapter 38 focuses on his brother judah so we're going now to chapter 39 continuing in joseph's story we're going to see that his plight is going to go from bad where we left him last week to worse it gets worse than being sold into slavery and it's a story we probably all know but the really amazing thing to me in this is we see this is that god isn't only with him he's for him And we can know that, that God is not only with us in our trials, but that he is for us. We have the eternal God of the universe on our side, fighting for us. It's a powerful, powerful thing. So Genesis 39, beginning in verse 1, says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh the captain of the bodyguard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that this time that he made him an overseer in his house, and that all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, "'Lie with me.' But he refused and said to his master's wife, "'Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge.' There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her. He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened on the day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the uh, none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled, and he went outside. And when she saw that he he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought a Hebrew to to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave, whom you brought to us, came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now when his master had heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me. His anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for this time we have this morning to open your word, to read this story about Joseph and to see you in it, to see you with him and to see you working for him. I pray that you bless this time that we have and help, help it to touch us and to help us to better understand you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so we, we start here at the chapter 39, exactly where we left off at the end of chapter 37. The Joseph's brothers hated him. They couldn't stand the fact that God was giving him dreams, that he would rule over them. They couldn't stand the fact that he was their father's favorite. He you ask my sister, I was the favorite, so I understand Joseph's. She called when she was just a little girl and I was even younger. She said that my name should be Precious. Well, Precious doesn't have to do that. Precious doesn't have to be my, my dad thought it was so funny, he still calls me Precious every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> but because of all that, his brothers hated him and they, they despised him so much they wanted to kill him. But then they decided, Well, why kill him? We can make some profit off of and so they sell him to these Ishmaelite traders on their way down to Egypt. And he picks up here again, restating that, that he was taken down to Egypt and that he was sold into slavery. to so this man, Potiphar, who was an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought to him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. So there's... Different speculations on Potiphar. I, one that I have read, I have heard it as a reason for Potiphar's wife's actions. I don't think it's, it's true. The, the word in Hebrew there for officer uh, in many cultures in that time would be the same word that you would use for a eunuch. Uh, that many kings in with their chief officers, that's what they would do. But there's no evidence from anything in history that that was what took place in Egypt that, that's, that they did that. And so I don't think that's the case. I think his wife is just a sinful person who desired something and she wanted it. We have Pharaoh, or Potiphar is the most likely thing they think it was. was. He was the, the chief of, of Pharaoh's executioners. He had a high position in Pharaohs. And that's who Joseph gets sold to. Let's look at verses 2 through 6. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, And he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about from that time he made him overseer's house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph, and thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. We get this picture of of Joseph's life now that he's in Egypt. Remember, he he was 17 when this happened. I think that these first six verses of this chapter probably encompass six or seven years of Joseph's life. By the time we get to verse 6 and we see that he's over all of Potiphar's household and everything has been entrusted to him, he's probably early, maybe mid-20s. I think it's interesting that in this chapter alone, it says that the Lord was with Joseph four times. We get it twice here early, and we'll get it twice again at the end. That that question that is so easily brought to mind when you see Joseph thrown in the hole, when you've seen him sold and sent away from his family, his family of promise, the family that has this covenant with God of blessing. And that Joseph is taken away from that. That question that's so easily asked, is God with us? And I told you last week, I don't think Joseph ever doubted that. Moses, as he was writing this here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear. God is with him. and He's going to repeat it four times. The name for God here, for the Lord, is Yahweh. is the covenant God of Abraham. It's interesting that the four times, or I'm sorry, it's used in this chapter seven times, Yahweh is. But in the whole story of Jacob and his children that goes from 37, chapter 37 to chapter 50, it's only used one other time. But here in this one chapter on Joseph, as his plight is going from bad to worse, but we see his successes in those trials that that God is using his covenant name there that he is with Joseph again I've repeated this thought many times as we looked at Revelation but our God is a promise keeper and he has made a promise to Abraham that he has reiterated to Isaac that he has reiterated to Jacob and he has given Joseph, these dreams that he is going to do something through him and he has not forsaken him. No matter what it may look like to us on the outside. That Joseph, as he's taken down there and he's sold into slavery, he's like this precursor of what we know will come of the Israelites being slaves to the Egyptian, that Joseph is the first one, that through all of that, his God is with him. And through this, we see that I just think it's amazing, because you see, everything Joseph does, it works out. I mean, Potiphar must just be thrilled. He just thought he was getting an ordinary slave to be someone in his household, and he gets this guy that, no matter what he puts him in charge of, it turns to gold. He got the ultimate bargain in Joseph. But the thing is, what we see in this story, that even Potiphar knew that it was Yahweh doing this. How do you think Potiphar knew that it was Yahweh causing this success? Joseph told him. Joseph was secure and grounded in his faith, and despite the fact that he had been taken from his family and sold as a slave, he was not ashamed to proclaim the name of his God. That's amazing. This is who Joseph was. And as he proves to be more and more faithful, as he proves that his God is indeed blessing him, we see Potiphar putting him over more and more. And so the, the point where, it's an interesting phrase, that the only thing that Potiphar had to worry about was the food he put in his mouth. And certainly not cooking it. I mean, this man as an officer probably had very little to do at work other than oversee Other people that did the work, and then he would come home, and because of Joseph, he didn't have to do anything at home or even worry about anything at home. He was just getting the fork from the plate to the mouth. It's the life he is living because of Joseph, and he knows that it's because of Yahweh. It's because of the Lord that he is seeing the success in his house. But Joseph's story continues to get harder. Verse 7, and it came about, oh, and it ended there with, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. If you go back 11 chapters to Genesis 29. Genesis 29, verse 17, it says, and Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Leah, was, her eyes were weak, man. it wasn't pleasant to look at her. But Rachel, says, was pleasant in form of face. It's the same Hebrew phrase here is used of his mother. So we, we get a picture that Joseph has gotten his good looks from his mom. That that has run in the family. That he is not only successful in everything that he's doing, but he is a good-looking young man. So now we get to verse 7. And it came about after these events that his master's wife, Looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I. And he has withheld nothing from me except you. Because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? It's interesting in the Hebrew here. The idea is repeated there a couple times that she's asking him to to lie beside her. Not it isn't the typical Hebrew phrase for "lie with me" that would insinuate come have relations with me. But what it more is saying is she is trying to introduce a physical familiarity with them that she is hoping will lead to relations. She is this young, innocent man, and she is trying to... It's just interesting to me because it's how sin so often works in our lives, is that it is take this little step here, and then it's easier to take the next step. And so she's trying to introduce this physical familiarity in something he should not be doing, in hopes that it will lead to something, a greater sin. And we see Joseph wisely say no. He knows where this is going. He says no. It was often, a few months ago, we looked at, at Daniel, and like Joseph, he was in a foreign land, and when the first thing comes up, you need to eat this food and drink this drink that had been offered to idols, he says, I can't do it. He drew his line in the sand. And Joseph is doing that here. That as a slave, he's in this predicament that he's supposed to be obeying his master and his master's wife, and yet he knows what she is asking is leading to something that is not only treacherous against his master who has entrusted him, but more importantly, as he ends there, it is a sin against God. His God. His God that has promised him this future. This future that he can't see, that he has no idea what God is doing at this very moment through him being a slave in a foreign land, but he believes in that God and then his promises will come true. And he says, I can't sin against him. You know, when life gets really hard, sometimes it's easy to, if I'm focusing on the negative instead of acknowledging God, then you're not committing yourself to who God is. Because if you are committing yourself to who God is, you know he's with you. But if you're sliding down that path, how much easier is it to, to sin against him? To not see his statutes as the most important thing in, as you make your decisions in life. But that's not where Joseph was at. Again, in the face of this This temptation that we see so many Bible heroes and Bible stories where this one temptation befalls so many people. In Sunday school this morning, we looked at the story of David and Bathsheba, the man after God's own heart and the pile of sin that he got into because of this temptation. And I see this and I think of how young he is and taken away from his family at 17 and here only in his early to mid-20s and yet he still says, no, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that to my master and more importantly, I cannot sin against God in that way. This young man was committed to his God, committed to his faith. He knew that God was with him. No matter what his plight was, no matter... What he was facing, God was with him. God is good, and he was going to obey God. What an excellent example Joseph is for us. And what a challenge is, as a church, as parents, as grandparents, that how do we live this out so that the next generation can see that? And it's interesting, I mean, you can have, I have four children, I pray for each one of them. that They will all grow to be little female Josephs that live their faith. You never know, I mean, Jacob had 12 sons. The whole of chapter 38 is a terrible story about Joseph's brother Judah and sexual sin. They had the same parent, they worshipped the same God in the same household. But we We should be thankful for Joseph's example, and thankful for, I am as a parent, of having these lessons in front of us, being able to teach our children about these things, having a church that loves our family, that loves children, that is willing to give of their time to be with children, of having a youth pastor who has a passion for teenagers that are beginning to face these challenges, we need to be praying for parents and for Sunday school teachers and for Trevor and all those that serve with him. Because that is at an age where these things are really formed so that as they are in their early 20s, that they can be a Joseph. And to face these temptations and go, no, my God is greater. Verse 10 says, as she spoke to Joseph day after day, He did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. As temptation often is, she was persistent. And again, Joseph, as a slave in this household, cannot get away from her. He cannot physically remove himself from this temptation, and so he has to be committed in his faith to standing strong. I think that's an important lesson. There are some temptations in life that we can flee from that we can't avoid and there are others that are going to be there and to repeat themselves but we look at his commitment to his faith his commitment to his God and he's able to overcome it I read a quote this week that says success in temptation depends more on character than circumstances and that character rests on commitment to the will of God I read that and I thought that's perfect Because that's what Joseph, that's who he was. And that was how he overcame this day after day. We can see his character, his loyalty to Potiphar, even though he's his slave, but more importantly, his loyalty to God and God's commands. Continue on, verse 11 through 15. Now it happened one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household. And she said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to, make, to us to make sport of us. He came in to me with, to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Uh, something my mom was always fond of saying was, "Avoid the appearance of evil." You know, it's, it's known as the the Billy Graham rule. Mike Pence got mocked for this when he was Trump's vice president that he would not go to a meal alone with a female that wasn't his wife if he was at a social gathering without his wife, he would not have a sip of alcohol. That he would insulate himself from even rumors or appearance of any kind of evil. And the world mocked him for it. And yet, in the world we live in, you never know what someone is going to say. And that has always been the case. And so Joseph, as a slave, again, he doesn't have the Luxury of saying, Well, she's alone in the house, I won't go in. He had work he had to do. And he goes in the house and she comes onto him again, and he wisely flees the situation before he is drawn into sin. And she uses that situation to to accuse him. And she accuses him to the whole household, and then she keeps his garment there and waits. For her husband. So she left his garment beside her until the master came home. And then she spoke to him with these words The Hebrew slave, whom you brought to us, came in to me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. She repeats the same story to her husband. When I see this. Imagine. Again, I just, I try to imagine being in Joseph's position in that, you know, God, you let my brothers sell me as a slave. You've taken me all the way here to Egypt. You were blessing everything I did. I could have taken the easy way out and sinned, and yet I stood for what I knew to be right. And now you're letting this happen. This woman is ruining my name. Verse 19, now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. Understandably, he was he was mad. But it is interesting what happens next. So Joseph's master took him and put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. I am not an expert on the Egyptian judicial system, but from what I've read, this is not what should have happened to Joseph. He should have been killed. And so it's interesting, these six, seven, however many years that he was there, living out his faith, proclaiming his God's name, and his God blessing everything he did, was seen by Potiphar. Potiphar would not have put a man in charge of his household that he didn't know and feel comfortable with and so he knew Joseph's character and what this young man was all about and so well initially his anger burns and then he can't just let him go his wife is accusing him of this, him of this terrible thing he doesn't have him killed he takes him to the jail where the king's prisoners are held I think that in itself is a testimony to Joseph's life and to his faith and to who his God is, that Potiphar did not immediately have him executed for this crime. I mean, his wife is accusing him of a terrible, terrible crime. And Potiphar does not have him killed, but he takes him to jail. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. In reading this this week, I I couldn't help but think of my grandma. My grandma was an avid reader, and my grandpa loved movies, and so they watched movies all the time. If there was a book or a movie that had anything to do with an innocent person being in prison, she wouldn't even consider watching it. And she wasn't shy about saying, I, I can't imagine that. I won't watch it. I, that would, To her, that was just the worst thing ever. Even if it was fiction, she couldn't even stand the thought of someone falsely accused being in prison. And that's with our prison system. I have no idea what an Egyptian prison would have looked like four and a half thousand years ago, but I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. And that's where Joseph finds himself. But God, the Lord, Yahweh, was with him, and he showed kindness to him. Joseph continued, despite all of this, to live out his faith, to know that God was with him. And God showed kindness to him through it. No matter as a slave or in prison, it didn't change Joseph's outlook on life. Continues in 22 and 23, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. I mentioned it last week. But I'll say it again. I think this story of Joseph is like the ultimate example of God's providence and Joseph's faith, or a man's faith, and living that out. And you take the two that even when we make mistakes, like we looked at this morning in Sunday school, that David makes this terrible mistake, and yet God, through Bathsheba, David bears Solomon she bears Solomon, he has this child Solomon who would the line of Jesus would come through. God can take anything, any mess that we make and make something great of it, but when you have someone whose whole life is about their faith and you get to see God's providence working clearly through it, that just amazing things can happen. That as a slave he had this, this testimony That even his master knew that these blessings that he got in his household, in the field, that, that all of these new riches that he had weren't because of him. It was Joseph's God blessing this slave so much that the whole household prospered. And that testimony affecting the punishment that Joseph gets, and then when he gets to the prison, evidently everything he did there worked too because the chief jailer just says, well, why don't... Why don't you be in charge? (laughs) Let him run the place because of what his God was doing through him. And God worked in that way and used Joseph's faith to create this amazing testimony about who he is. And obviously, we know the story. The story is going to get better. We're going to see God's providence come to this amazing place and how it will bring the family back in and all of that. But even in these terrible circumstances that god is there his presence is evident and he's not only with joseph he is for him he is fighting on his side and it doesn't matter what you are going through or i am going through that god is not only with us he is fighting for us and we need to look at what god can do through us in the face of those trials that as James says, as those trials bring us to completion or perfection, that that is us serving God through them, and that that's how we grow through them. What God, what can you do through what I'm facing right now? How can your name be glorified by this challenge I'm facing, this trial? That as I seek to serve you, I'm finding all of these roadblocks in the way. How is your name going to be made greater through me because of that. When I think about challenges in life and having to face hard times. You know, the, the 10 years I spent as a funeral director, I met with a lot of families that were facing very, very challenging times. One sticks out to me beyond any other, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I'll give you the whole story. I, many of you know, Kaylin and Julia are only 10 months apart. Julia was born in, in February, and I took two weeks off. And my first day back at work, I get in the office at 8.30, and I get handed a file by our general manager, who was angry that I had been gone the last two weeks because they had been busy And he says, there's a family coming in at nine. Here's the file you're meeting with them. Okay. I opened the file. (laughs) It was for a baby girl that had been born two days before and died a few minutes after birth. And I went to him and I told him, I said, I I don't think I can do it. Why not? Because two weeks ago, I just had a healthy, beautiful baby girl. And I have another one that's only 10 months old. (laughs) and I'm, I am reveling in the joy of fatherhood, and you want me to meet with this young couple that has just lost their first child? I said, yeah. No one else to do it. You have to do it. And this family came in, this young couple came in with, and they were very young. I think they were only 20. And they came in with the, the mother of the wife and another lady who ran a charity in Columbus for parents who lost children, either in miscarriage or, or newborns. And I had worked with her before, and so had several other of our directors. And so I pulled her aside and I said, I told her exactly what was going on in my life. I said, evidently there's no one else here that can meet with them. I am going to do my best, <laughs> but I, today's my first day back after taking two weeks off for the birth of my daughter. Get through the arrangement conference, I had to go pick the baby up. I embalmed the baby. I dressed the baby. I cosmetized the baby. I took that baby to the church two hours before the service. And I took that baby out of her casket and handed it to her. And I wept with her. And with the dad. And I held him. And I prayed with them. The story isn't about me, though. The story is about the, the grandmother of the baby. She came up to me. There in the back room at the church before the service. And she told me, she said, you know, Karen from the, the charity, she told me about your daughter. And she said, I'm so sorry you had to do this, but I want you to know that God had you come back to work that morning because you're the only one that could have done this for us. In the loss of her first grandchild in her young daughter's pain and grief, she saw God's hand. Through all of it, she was desperate for her daughter to see God in her pain. She wasn't ashamed to pronounce who her God was, that even in the midst of pain, he could provide someone that she felt like fit their needs perfectly. She brought glory to God to everyone that would listen to her in the midst of her sorrow and suffering. What a wonderful testimony. How many things do I face in life for that challenging? And do I see God there? She did. Joseph did. Joseph is, I mean, read through the entire scripture. How many heroes of our faith? You read through Hebrews 11. How many heroes of our faith do you read about and go, well, it's amazing they're here because of this and because of this and because of this. The whole list. But Joseph, we don't really have anything in here negative. He lived his faith, and God was for him, and he's for us. So take courage, take strength, take joy out of Joseph's story. That Joseph is sort of that ultimate example of Hebrews 11.6 that we read last week, that, that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. If we come to God, it has to be in faith that he is who he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That was Joseph's life. It needs to be our life. And it needs to show in our life. Because if it does, if we are in the midst of the storm, raising a hallelujah, it will show to the people. The world is impressed by wealth, and it's impressed by so many things, but things it can't understand, it will grab people's attention. And if you can praise your God in slavery or in prison or whatever that looks like in your life, then it will make other people go, why? Because of who he is. Let us strive to be like Joseph.